we're in Acts chapter 3. <clears throat> I want to remind you, uh, I think almost everybody has been here the last couple of weeks, but that uh, what, what is happening in Acts, the book of Acts, is very much a transition book between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the old order, which Jesus fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, and that coming of the Holy Spirit. I just get, you got to keep all that in mind. And with that, you have the apostles, Peter, James, John, those individuals, doing the same kind of miracles and doing the same kind of teaching because they are, they are dealing with the people of Israel. These early chapters of the book of Acts, once uh, we get to uh, chapter 2, they're still in Jerusalem. And remember Jesus' directive, Acts 1.8, start in Jerusalem, and go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's how the book of Acts is laid out. So when they're in Jerusalem, the miracles they're doing, now listen, make sure you understand the sentence. The miracles they're doing are messianic miracles. Now, if I use that phrase, do you understand what I mean by that? Messianic miracles. Miracles that the Jewish people should recognize and understand as prophesied in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so as Jesus did those, it was to draw attention. And, and he is our Messiah. And the disciples, the apostles, are continuing that. So we read about one of those last week in the first uh, 10 verses of that man at the temple. Uh, and I showed you a map of the temple mountain, all that, got an idea of where that was who from birth had been lame, and he miraculously is healed. That's a messianic miracle, and it draws attention of the Jewish people to Jesus. And so what is happening in verse 11 through 16, which we also covered last week, Peter begins a sermon. Uh, I, I guess we could call it a sermon, but it's, it's a talk, a discussion, uh, but I'll call it a sermon, in which he draws their attention the crowd that sees what's happened to this man draws their attention to Jesus. And we studied this last week, verse 13, verse 14. All of those titles that are used by Peter in his sermon are to draw attention to the Old Testament being fulfilled. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, 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 the servant, the holy righteous one, those the author of life, all of those terms are to draw their attention, I should say titles, are to draw their attention to Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, and it's continuing. And so it's, it's, it's to draw the Jewish people to reach the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he's ascended back to the Father and completed his work. His messianic work continues. Now, once you get out of... Um, out of Jerusalem and Judea, and Paul in a lot of, of his ministry. Paul, is, he does a few, but Paul is not doing a lot of miracles. Like healing sick, raising people from the dead, he's casting out demons. He, but it's a triumphant type of ministry that's proclaiming the gospel message. So I'm just trying to draw the big picture so you don't lose sight of what is really going on here in terms of Peter's message. Now, verse 17 is where I want to pick up. But any questions? 
This is one of, this is one of the values in that Bible study to keep drawing your attention to a lot of these very, very important truths. Right. You mentioned it last week. Yeah. I, I think the part about after Peter was done uh, recapping with him what had happened to Jesus and, and how he was crucified, uh, and they and they asked, well, what should we do? Yeah. Or something like that. I that's right. That's what they Brothers, what should we do? Because they, they just thought, wow. I don't know how that could have happened that they would crucify the man that we've been waiting for. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, so that I think that they were just really in shock and they didn't want to be any part of that. So what do we do, Peter? And that's now he's explaining. How do, how do we respond to all of this now? Yeah. And as we saw at the end of chapter 2, 3,000 of them responded uh, amazingly. All right, let's pick up then in verse 17. Just because we ran out of time last week. Uh, It says, Peter's continued address, his continued sermon. And now, brothers, notice how he's addressing these people. Because they are fellow Jews. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, that's an interesting statement. He is not absolving them but he's saying you did not understand you rejected the truth that Jesus is the Messiah of God as did your rulers and the term ignorance and that's that's the difficulty with that because when you read a word like ignorance in, in English you say oh well that absolves them of responsibility That's not exactly what he's saying. But he's saying, you did not understand this in terms of it's, you should have, and that's what he's going to, that's that's the point he's going to make in verse 18. You should have, but you didn't. You did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And the rulers did not. Now, probably when he says rulers, he doesn't necessarily mean Rome. He's talking there about the Sanhedrin. So he's not absolving these people. He's saying, I realize you did not, you did not accept this truth. But So I guess for me, I, I would agree more with the, I didn't accept the truth. It may have been denial. It may have been uh, greed. It may have been... Greed. A lot of motives. But I, I don't think it was ignorance. It's, it's hard to read that. It's hard to see ignorance. Yeah, that's the well. That's that's the difficulty in translation when you see in English a word like ignorant, because in in English, if someone is ignorant of something, then the corollary to that is well then that absolves them from responsibility. They, well, they just didn't know. They had no understanding of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, that's not what he's going to say. Or that's not what he means because of the next verse. What's, what's the Greek? So what's the Greek? You know, I don't have, uh, I don't have my Greek Testament with me. Um, and I, I, I cannot recall what that Greek term is. 
um, my my sense is it is probably from the Greek word oida, O-I-D-A. It's a derivative of that, which means they knew the facts, but they didn't know it intimately and personally. You see, there's a difference. There are two Greek words for know or knowledge or understanding. And I, I again, I, I should have I should have looked that up. Uh, before I came here this morning, but uh, I, I just I, my, my guess is it's probably derivative avoida. You had the facts, but you didn't you didn't accept it intimately, personally. Um, if you look at the verse uh, eighteen, the first word I'm sure that's true in all your translation is but, which is a strong adversative, a strong contrast. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer. What, what does that phrase mean, his Christ? Yeah, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The Hebrew word is Messiah, Messiah. The Greek word is Christos, same word. And so that's how the Old Testament talks about the relationship of the Father and the Son. That the Son is the, because Messiah or Christos means anointed one of God. So, it, it, and that's really, it's really neat how Peter does this. He draws on that Old Testament teaching that God, this is not new truth to them. For them to hear Peter say that God's Christ would suffer, that's not new truth to them. That's all over the Old Testament. That the Messiah of Israel would suffer. Isaiah 50. Right, exactly. I mean, see, that's why this does not absolve them. <laughs> you may not have personally appropriated this by faith. You were, quote, ignorant, close quote. But that does not absolve you of responsibility. And, and, and notice what he says as he concludes the verse that his Christ would suffer. He Thus fulfilled. Who's the he? Christ, Jesus. He fulfilled. And that is one of the key words in the book of Acts. It's a key word in the Gospel of Matthew. That little word fulfilled. That Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies. You should have known this. And if I can be kind of bold here. In my judgment, this is one of the strongest apologetics for the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible. Is how all of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. That is a strong, strong, you know what I mean by apologetic, strong defense of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible. And that's that's what Peter's doing here to these people for these people. And so he therefore, based on what he said, and we studied that last week, and now what he's saying here, he now calls on them to respond, which is what verse 19 is all about. But before we get into that, are, is, are you with me? Any questions? I mean, it's just how Peter's masterfully dealing with these folks. And you always, you must remember in these early chapters, these are Jews. He would not do the same thing with Gentiles. I mean, you know, like a Greco-Roman person who's never read the Old Testament. 
he's not going to talk like this to some Greco-Roman person. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. What do you mean that God is Christ would suffer? I, that's not in Homer. That's not in the Greek mythology, mythological text. That's not in the Odyssey and the Iliad. That's not in the Aeneid of Virgil. I mean, all of those texts, that's what they were read. You're going to use something different, but we'll, we'll get to that later on when we get to Paul. All right, now, verse 19 is, is quite important because here Peter, may I put it this way, insists on response. Repent, therefore, and turn again. Now, from verse 13 to verse 18, the Apostle Peter has laid a historical and theological foundation for verse 19. Now, if I utter that sentence, does that make sense to you? An historical and theological foundation. Historical, he's reviewed very briefly their history as a people. You are the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., and the theological foundation, partially what we did at the end, the author of life, and now he's that God's Christ would suffer and Jesus fulfilled all that. That's the theological foundation. That insists on a response. So the response is repent and turn again. Now, repent is metanoia. It means to, they must repent. They must completely look at Jesus differently. They must do a 180-degree turn. How did they look at Jesus? Not as the Christ of God, not as their Messiah, as a man who deserved to die, broadly speaking, a man who deserved to die. You've got to change your mind about him. That's not who he is. He's the Messiah. He suffered. He died for you, etc. Et you got to do a 180-degree turn, and then you must, I love how this is, turn again, mean you must fall in line with God. That's what, that's what that Greek phrase, mean, phrase, phrase means. You are turning 180 degrees in how you see, understand, embrace Jesus and fall in line with God's program. And if you do that, I mean, obviously, that's an act of faith. There are three results that will follow. And in the Greek, it's really clear. There are three result clauses that follow this. So the, he's, he's, again, he's using language here that you and I don't, we usually don't talk like this when we're talking to a, a person who is a postmodern pagan or a postmodern Hindu, Buddhist, Nirvana, New Age, I mean, all these wild things that are out there. We want them to understand the nature of their sin against the Lord and what Jesus has done for them. What he's saying is, God, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's done all this. Now fall in line with God's program. You know who he is. He's the God of the Old Testament. You know about the Christ. You know about the Messiah. It was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled all this. So fall in line with God. That's what he's really saying to them. That's a much different, that's a much different command response and what Peter will say or excuse me I may say Paul will say like in Acts 17 when he's with the council of philosophers in in Mar in Mars Hill in, in Athens he's not going to say this totally different approach now I'm, I'm 
preaching now more than teaching. But it's for you guys who understand all this because of prophecy, fall in line with God. Fall in line with his program. And three things will happen. What, you had your hand up? He's saying, he's giving them tough love. He's giving them, he's giving them what for. He's saying, you know, he's preaching truth to them and it's important that they get this. And, and uh, it's not, probably not accepted very well to, to hear that, but he's telling them the truth. This guy in chapter four, is, you're right, he's not accepted. There's going to be a lot of pushback. But he is landing on the line, but he's doing it in a way that fits perfectly with their theological framework as Jews. You should understand this. Because everything he said from verse 13 through 18 is not a foreign language to them. It's not strange to them. What's strange and hard for them is Jesus fulfills all this stuff. But anyway, it's, I just I love this, how Peter's doing this. And I hope you're sort of excited about it, too. But now, again, as he looks at these three intended results, these results fit with an understanding of a Jewish context. Now, repent, therefore, turn again. Fall in line with God. First intended result, that your sins may be blotted out. The Greek word erased. The Greek word obliterated. Because God forgives you in Christ's because of his death, burial, and resurrection, the result of embracing him, of falling in line with God, changing your understanding of who Jesus is, and embracing him as the Messiah of Israel, your sins will be obliterated. Paul will use a theological word for that, justification. Peter doesn't use that. Second, second result, verse 3, second result clause that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The times of refreshing. That is a phrase out of the Old Testament prophets. When they would hear that, that's not a strange phrase to them. That is a phrase that has everything to do with the kingdom of God coming and refreshing and renewing Israel. The times of refreshing would have no meaning to a Greco-Roman person of the first century. It has great meaning to a Jewish person of the first century. Immediately, immediately, they would be thinking that time when everything will be restored, everything will be made new, Thirdly, third resort clause, that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, Jesus. Now, you read something like that. How do you understand it? That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. How do you understand it? What's he talking about? In your timeline, in your understanding of God's program, what's he talking about? Well, our sins are forgiven. Well, the second coming. I was looking for a specific event. The second coming. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Because he's already come. 
Right? His first advent has already occurred. He's lived his first advent. He came. He was born of Mary. I mean, all of those things. And then he went back to the Father. So listen to me. If these Jews in A.D. 33 accept Jesus as the Messiah, then they too will understand he is referring to the what we call the second coming. So it's it's part of and this is this is what you, you just must see this. This is part of building that new theological understanding for a Jew of the first century if Jesus is the Messiah. Because a Jew that rejects Jesus as the Messiah, how will they understand that God may send the Christ? It's the first time <laughs> that he hasn't come yet. But so Peter doesn't, so they don't misunderstand what Peter is saying. Send the Christ appointed for you, comma, that is Jesus. <laughs> so that they don't understand. And so for you and for me, and then for them, if they understand that Jesus is the Messiah, this is referring to the second coming. And it's further established by the next verse. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So verse 22, excuse me, verse 21, without question, validates that that's the second coming. Because Peter says, heaven receives him. Where is Jesus when Peter's saying this? He's at the right hand of the Father. And waiting for the restoring of all things. That's a messianic prophecy that's wrapped around the kingdom of God. We, I would call that the millennial kingdom. Not everybody says it that way, but when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and restores and renews the earth as a prelude to the new heavens and new earth. But the point is, again, Peter is just distilling down in three quick bullet points tremendous theology here. And for you and for me, it's the same thing. If you accept Jesus... As your Savior and Lord, your sins are taken care of. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling you, restoring, and then waiting for the return of Jesus when all things will be restored. The renewal of everything under Christ's kingdom and authority. Same thing for you and me. But for the Jews of AD 33, the pivotal thing they had to do was repent and get in line with God's program. Meaning, for them, understand that Jesus is your Messiah. And accept him. He is your Messiah. He died for you, etc., etc. Isn't that neat? You're supposed to say yes to that. <laughs> but, I mean, do you understand what he's doing here? It's, 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 it's masterful. It's absolutely masterful. For these people to hear what Peter is saying in light of that messianic miracle that occurred on Temple Mount outside the beautiful gate that we looked at last week where it was and everything. Jesus did that. 
Faith in Jesus. That's what healed that man. Peter said, I didn't do that. Jesus did that. To draw your attention to who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished. Fall in line with God's program. Stop your silly rebellion and rejection against God. This is God's Messiah. Accept him. And this is what will happen. Isn't it neat? All right. Four of you are with me. The rest of you, I think, are. No, I'm kidding. He's not done. He wants to put in one more zinger. What would seal it for a lot of Jews? Somehow bring Moses into this. Somehow bring Moses in to validate all this. Verse 22. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Peter is alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses indeed said, I'm a prophet, one who declares the truth about God, but God is sending a much greater prophet. And that, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus will say, in another place, that this refers to him. So it's like, sorry, Peter is sealing this now. Moses said, in verse 23, and it shall be that every soul, I, I forgot to finish verse 22. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, i.e. Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. That's an allusion to Leviticus 23, 29. To reject what God has clearly stated will bring judgment. All of the prophets, verse 24, who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. Samuel, it's, it's interesting that he chooses Samuel there, but Samuel on through the end, which the end would be Malachi. That whole string of prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed these days. What days? The days of Jesus, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. His ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all the stuff that you people have seen, all the prophets from Samuel to Malachi talked about all this. You've seen it. You, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. He sent Jesus to you, to you Jews. You in Jerusalem saw him. You saw what he did. You saw what he's still doing in healing that man on Temple Mount a day or two ago, Peter's saying. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Wow. All right, I get all excited about this stuff because it's just it's just amazing to me, and, and that's why it's it's so incredible. P- Peter is just taking scads of truths throughout the Old Testament and putting them into these pithy statements: bang, 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 bang. 
Uh, it's the whole testament distilled down to a paragraph. <laughs> and it, it demands a response. And that's what he's uh, insisting on. Joel. Uh, two, two, one question and one thought. Um, was Samuel kind of considered the first prophet? Is that why he says starting with Samuel? Or? Well, it is a little uh, unusual, I guess, you could say, that he... Um, he starts with Samuel because Moses would be considered a prophet and those that there were one or two that followed Moses. But the major prophetic ministry does start with Samuel. Um, and it's largely, uh, it's largely through the institution of the monarchy, which remembers Samuel um, um, does anoint Saul as the first king and then David as well as the second king. And then the role of the prophets becomes critical in the monarchy, speaking to the king and to the people. I suppose because he mentioned Moses in verse 22, he's kind of being chronological. Okay, the major prophet ministry starts with Samuel and continues, although he doesn't mention him, that's what he means, on through Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet in terms of chronology. And every one of them, did, every single one of them spoke and talked about the very things Peter was summarizing to one degree or another. So then that's kind of my second question or thought. I mean, it's really easy today to look back and see how, you know, how did they miss this and so forth. But that's, maybe that's not any fair to the, to the Jews of that era. But I mean, was it? I mean, was it just the that's really a great question uh, and it's it's hard um, it's hard to answer that without perhaps drawing more on your, the word you used anything else what was their expectation in AD 33 not you know 539 B.C. when they came back from the exile and rebuilt the temple and all that stuff. Not even during, let's take another, the time of the Maccabees, 165 B.C. But this is, this is different because now they're in the boot of Rome's oppression. And their, their entire perspective, the broad stroke statement, but their entire perspective was freedom from the oppression of Rome. And that's what Messiah said he'll do. He'll restore his kingdom. He'll restore his rule. He'll take care of our enemies. And so they're looking at it through the grid of just a political understanding of what Messiah would do. And it's not wrong, but that is only a small part of the bigger picture of what Messiah is going to do for them. And so I think, and that's, that's why I hesitated a minute, your word that you used, expectation, is probably the key to this. Their expectation did not fit with the Old Testament teachings of all that Messiah would do for them. I think I might have heard it one time that they expected a triumph from Jesus coming in and right. They the did. Or so. They did. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, Jesus, I think it's in Matthew, uh, 
I'm thinking 16, but I might be off a chapter or two there. But in uh, in Matthew 16, uh, no, it's earlier than that. I think it might be 11. But anyway, Jesus is saying, um, John the Baptist and I, we did not meet your expectation. You had certain expectations of what we would do. And you would sing a song and we didn't dance. You'd want to play a game and we didn't play by your rules. You rejected us because we did not meet your preconceived expectations. I'm really paraphrasing what he said. And he there he then moves into, are you culpable? Are you responsible for rejecting me and John? The answer is yes. And that's when he says, that's why it is in, in Matthew 11. That's why he says, in the coming judgment, it will be better for people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. It will be better for the cities of Tyre and Sidon, two of the most wicked cities up in, in ancient uh, Phoenicia, than for you. How could Jesus say that? I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah. Because these people had the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, walking in their cities, talking to them, doing messianic miracles, and they rejected him. And that's why Joel's question with that term expectation, it falls in line with what Jesus said. Your expectation was a conquering king. Yeah, the Old Testament prophets talk about that that the Old Testament prophets often talk about a suffering servant who would die for his people. They only picked a little bit of what they wanted to believe. And today, I was just, I was just reading, um, well, it's important what I was reading. Anyway, this man I was reading, it's really interesting how he looks at Jesus. I love Jesus. I thought, ooh, he's a great teacher. I love his ethical framework. I love to read and meditate on the Sermon on the Mount and several other things. But, <laughs> big but, he's not the son of God. He's not the incarnate God. The virgin birth is a myth. All those miracles he did are legends. You see what he's doing? He's picking and choosing. He likes what Jesus said. And that's okay. That, I mean, it's good to hear somebody say that. But not this stuff, and he, he <laughs> this, was the, this was the crowning rejection. And this idea that he was resurrected. Nobody believes that today. So you have, you have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. So that man whom I was reading is rejecting Jesus. He's accepting Jesus' teachings about the Sermon on the Mount and ethics and so on, but not what he did not what the cross is all about, not what the resurrection is all about, not what the ascension is all about, not his promise to come back again. No, he was just a man. And he said he's a little bit like Socrates, a great deal like Buddha and Confucius. That's how he said it. So he lumps Jesus as an ethicist, not as the savior of the world. 
And there's a big difference there. Was Jesus an ethicist? Yes. But if that's all you believe about Jesus, you're only embracing about 15%. I just made that statistics up. I don't know what it would be, but a small fragment of what he really was. All right. Great question, comments here. Joel, was that, I mean, that's a great question. Now, how did everybody respond to what Peter was saying? That's what chapter 4 is about. What's the first word of chapter 5, uh, sorry, 4 verse 1? And. You remember what and is from grammar, don't you? It's a coordinating conjunction. So you don't, there's no chapter break, really. It's just immediately Luke says, I want you to understand how the leadership responded to what Peter was saying. And as they were speaking to the people. So as Peter's talk or address or sermon is winding down, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, let me comment. The priests would be those who administer the sacrifices on Temple Mount and so on. The captain of the temple is the one who is in charge of the temple police. Rome gave the Jewish Sanhedrin a small group of soldiers to police Temple Mount. This captain of the temple guard is the one who's in charge of that. He would be a Jew. But often the soldiers who acted as a police force would have been Roman soldiers. And the Sadducees. Now, uh, yes. You said Luke. Uh, Remember, Luke is writing, Luke's writing the book of Acts. Okay, so Peter's done. With, I mean, That's right. Peter's message or address is over. And so what, so what Luke is doing now, as they are winding down, this is what happens. So now Luke's back. He's, he's continuing the narrative of what's happening. Again, this is, this is only a few days after Pentecost. You know, it's only you know, 60, 65 days after Jesus went back to the Father and, and, the, and the, the, the sacrifice and Passover, I mean, all that stuff. Now, so, I mean, this is, these leaders of Judaism, these, these, these priests and the, the heads of the temple police who are interested in order and stability and the Sadducees. Let's talk about them. I, I want to spend some time on this. I want you to understand who these guys are. If I, I'm going to put it this way. Now I'm going to use a 21st century way of talking about them. These would be the theological liberals of 1st century Judaism. Okay? These are the anti-supernaturalists. They rejected... Angels, they rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. And these guys were pro 
throne. These guys were the rich aristocrats. Of the first century Judaism. These were the, the, and they, by the way, are the majority on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, where we are right now in AD 33, 34, 35, 36, they're the majority on the Sanhedrin. So they're running the show. Now, it doesn't mean the Pharisees, the Pharisees and these two guys don't get along at all. But right now, he's, Peter, uh, sorry, Luke is not explaining because the Sadducees are the ones that are really threatened by what these guys are doing. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But I, I wish I could take you to uh, Jerusalem now. And in uh, the old city, uh, we'll call it Old City Jerusalem, um, there are a couple of places where you can go down steps. Because remember, you know, in archaeology, you just build one city upon another city. So you go back to the first century, they found the ruins, it's unbelievable, of a lot of the homes of the Sadducees. Indoor plumbing. Incredible, incredible mosaics on the floor. They had their own mikvotes in their homes. Remember what I talked about that? What that was last week? Their own cleansing pools in their homes. Incredibly wealthy, and they—they—that's why they were linked to Rome because Rome provided stability, and Rome Rome rewarded them for the support of keeping everybody in line. And because of that, the theological liberal part of it, they're rejecting two of the key aspects that you see all through the Old Testament. And certainly that which is aligned with Jesus, the doctrine of angels and the doctrine of resurrection. And so when, when it tells us, that when Luke tells us that the priests, okay, these are the guys who administer the sacrifices and do the day-to-day stuff of Judaism. The captain of the temple police is the guy who is responsible for keeping order. And what is happening is there's a growing fear that all of the disciples and all of this teaching is going to create a lot of disorder in Jerusalem. And who does not like disorder in Jerusalem? Rome. Rome will tolerate a lot, but they will not tolerate disorder. They'll crush it. And so the temple police are showing up to make sure that these guys are going to get in line because they're going to throw them in prison and then the Sanhedrin. Because if there's anyone who wants to shut these guys up, it's the Sadducees. Because these guys are talking about the resurrection. These guys are talking about all the Old Testament prophets being fulfilled in this man Jesus, and we killed him, and we're glad we killed him. And that phrase came up, I'm reading ESV translation, came upon them as they set upon them violently. They are asserting their leadership. And I love verse 2. Greatly annoyed. (laughs) When my daughter was in high school and college, and her phrase she used all the time, this is so annoying. So when I read this, I think of Joanna. <laughs> we're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people. And what does it say? Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And these are the guys who reject that. So if anybody is interested in shutting these guys up, it's the Sadducees. 
We'll talk about the Pharisees a little later on. And so you have, and this is why Luke's doing it this way, you have all of the key leadership. You, you have the spiritual leaders, priests. You have the sort of quasi-military leaders, the temple police. Because remember, Rome gave them the soldiers, but the Jewish Sanhedrin administered this to keep order on Temple Mount. And you have the Sadducees. Verse 3, and they arrested them. Now remember, this would be public. Because Peter and what the guys had been doing, as, as we, we read in chapter 3, they were on Temple Mount. So they're arrested in a very public place. It's a very public demonstration of the authority of these people. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The tradition of Jewish law was the Sanhedrin met only in the mornings. And so this is late in the evening. Say, so you guys are going to spend the night in jail. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Isn't that interesting how Luke has done this? You have the response of the leadership, verses 1, 2, and 3. You have the response of the broader population, verse 4. Luke tells us something. The number of men came to about 5,000. What inference can you draw from that? There's probably a lot more. Probably a lot more. Now, so far, if you just think of how and it's another thing that I think Luke has done. You start with the 11, the disciples, you know, minus one because of Judas. Then you have 120 in the upper room waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then you have the 3,000 that accept the Lord uh, after the Pentecost sermon. And now you have 5,000 men plus. So within a matter of days, how Large is the church in Jerusalem. Probably 10,000 10, or more. Isn't that amazing? Why is Luke doing this? Why is he telling us these numbers? Because Jesus said, start in Jerusalem. Proclaim the gospel, truth, and message about Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And that's what they're doing. And it's amazing. So Luke is setting up this contrast. The people are accepting. Now, again, I mean, not everybody, but you're over 10,000 in a few days. That's a significant response. And the leadership is still in their old rejecting. I want anything to do with it. Uh, in, in between here, was it Luke or Matthew where Jesus said, oh, was it 70? Uh, well, Matthew particularly, but Luke mentions it too. Yes, so that he had he had sent out. Now, I mean, that's another thing we could do. I mean, I'm I'm just talking about what's happening after Pentecost. But I mean, you're right. I mean, you could go back to Jesus' ministry because again, the number of people following Jesus is very very large. But the gospel writers just zeroing in a handful of people here, handful of people here, handful of people here. So this could be perceived as a very charismatic type. <laughs> um, 
there was an Ambridge Gospel where it talks about um, another person doing works, and the disciples wanted to wanted Jesus to stop this guy from doing works. Oh yes, works. yes. He's doing it in his father's name. Right? So, yeah. how does that fit in with any? Is there any account for that? Where where that developed? Who was he? he wasn't a disciple, obviously, right? Is that a separate charismatic movement? Is it separate? No, um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think it's an alternative movement that is, is developing. It's the, the kind of good things that were occurring because of this person. Jesus says, don't stop him. There are good things resulting from that. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I think he was relating to Someone who is a disciple of John the Baptist isn't just someone coming from planet Pluto. But in other words, he's connected to Christ's ministry, but not directly under Jesus' disciples. And they're saying, should we shut this guy down, Jesus? He's not. No, no, no. He's doing good things. Things are very much in line with one. No, 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 no. And I think that's kind of now. One of the things that you can also say here that as Peter and John and James and all of that, what about the other disciples? Because we don't, you know, the the gospel of, or excuse me, the book of Acts doesn't talk about Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Andrew. It doesn't talk about any of those people. Well, that's what extra biblical literature, it's not quite as trustworthy as this, but these guys, they're fanning all over the place. And over the next several decades, some are going to go east, some are going to go west. I mean, they're just all over the place. All Acts is doing is zeroing in on the handful of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and then Paul. Very, very, very focused, but just zeroing in on a very small representative example, but... This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's authoritative. We can trust it. But there, there is an expansion of the gospel rapidly throughout the entire world eventually. Over the next, well, about the next six decades, the gospel is headed everywhere. But, the, you know, the, the Acts doesn't record this. There's a guy named Tom Oden, O-D-E-N. He's a theologian. Oh, back east, I forget the school. But one of his major, I'm telling you more than you really want to know, but I'll just mention it. One of his major projects is to try, and he's really done a masterful work, multi-volumes of, 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 of study, on how the church expanded based on the extra-biblical sources, geographically, how it expanded. And one of the major focal points that he studied a great deal is the church in North Africa. The church in North Africa is amazing. It's what Odin has been able to, to find, based on the resources and extra biblical uh, material. Pardon me. Well, Mark—that's uh, one of the traditions. Yeah, that Mark, because Mark is presumably buried in Compostela in northwestern Spain. That's traditionally where he's supposed to be buried. Now, I went way beyond and Glen's. I probably lost a lot of you saying, I don't care about this, Ekman, shut up. So um, it's just interesting to me. Huh? I know, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. 
look at verse 5, and we're almost done. We'll have to stop. On the next day, remember now, the whole Sanhedrin is meeting. On the next day, the rulers, probably the senior priests, the elders, these are the civic leaders of the Jews. These would be ones that are heads of the tribes and the family heads. And the scribes, these are the ones who studied and copied and interpreted the law, gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, Luke, can, can I tell you why this verse is important? It's historical. Is it all right if I explain it? This is really interesting what Luke is doing here. You see, Luke is saying everybody, in verse 5, everybody of any significant authority in first century Judaism is here. The rulers, the senior level of priests in the temple, the elders, the civic leaders of society, this doesn't anything to do with Rome. This is the civic leaders of Jew, the Jews. These would be the family and tribal and clan leaders. And the scribes, those who are the authorities on the law. And then the high priestly family. Annas. Annas, now listen, Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. He was deposed. And his son-in-law was made high priest. His son-in-law was Caiaphas. And his other two boys were John and Alexander. That's, I'm telling you, this is really interesting because Luke is telling us something that we see as this material unfolds. Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas is the real power and back to Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law. Caiaphas is the son-in-law. And Annas is the really big guy of Judaism. Jesus had a trial before Annas, as well as Caiaphas. So what Luke is saying in verse 5 and verse 6 is anyone of any authority, any position, any power in first century Judaism is with the Sanhedrin. That be some of these people that yes, yes. Yes, I mean, this is everybody who was anybody because they're all interested in one thing, shutting this thing down. Now, I'm almost out of time. Can I do one more thing or should I stop? Can I ask a question? Caiaphas was the son-in-law. He is the son-in-law. And John and Alexander were the sons. Uh, the sons of Annas, that's right. And who was the power? Actually? Annas. Annas is the real power. But what was Caiaphas' position then? He is the high priest. He's the high priest. Yeah, he is the high priest. Okay. Do one more thing. Do one more thing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Verse 7. And when they sat in their midst. Now the language is they're in a circle. And where is Peter and John? Right in the middle of the circle. That's the language here. 
they inquired, by what power, by what name, did you do this? Now, what is the demonstrative pronoun this referring to? The healing of that man at the beautiful gate on Temple Mount. I'm done. But isn't that a good question? By what power and by what name did you do this? What are they not denying that it happened? They're not denying. I mean, you can't deny it. It's objective. But they want to know by what authority, what name did you do this? If you're interested in how they answer this question, come back next week. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for our time together. Thank you for the word of God. I I ran down some bunny trails. I hope I didn't uh, lose the the man in, in, the, in the power of this text. This is an incredible, remarkable section of scripture. We're grateful for the privilege of studying it. Thank you for giving me the privilege of leading the study and I pray for these men think of all the guys who aren't here and all the different things that are part of their lives just pray you watch care over them but as we go now our separate ways dismiss us with your blessing take care of us and as we always try to pray Lord help us to represent you well because we are your representatives today we are your we are your arms we're your legs we're your eyes we're your ears we're the ones who are speaking for you and representing you to a world that desperately needs to hear the message of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.